And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, Feels Good Man filmmakers Arthur Jones and Giorgio Angelini discuss how they told the story of Pepe the Frog from boys club to misappropriation by the far right after the 2016 election, what it meant for Pepe the Frog to enter the U.S. Capitol building, and why we need to broaden our conversation around NFTs and digital art. Before we begin, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Today, we have Giorgio Angelini and Arthur Jones, the producer and the director of Feels Good Man, which was my favorite film of 2020 and possibly my favorite documentary of the last half decade. And it's not really, I'm not even kidding. No, thank you. And thank you for being here. And I, I need to really tell you, like, I don't know if it's my proximity or my closeness to the subject, but I, I definitely felt emotional two to three times during the film. Like there was definitely ways in which the, the story carried, but also like how much you guys really made sure we, we connected with Matt Fury and the subject matter and Pepe, like how to turn this two dimensional subject that became like so much meta into something that actually like made me feel good, man. You know, <laughs> uh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, the, the film is really just, I don't know, Arthur and I talk about this all the time, but it's like at the end of the day, it's just a kind of reminder that the the way that the internet is currently uh, put together, it feels like it tends to strip away all of our empathy and humanity and like authenticity. And it kind of shames you out of that. So we wanted to kind of make sure the film was as heartfelt as possible. Yeah. And, and Pepe is such a unique character. He carries so much emotion in all of the expressions that he makes, whether in the comic book or as a meme. And there's also something about Pepe that is Matt Fury, his creator. He embodies all of Matt's um, charm, you know, and we thought that making a film that really kind of shows the human, the human tragedy within Pepe's story from comic book character to meme to hate symbol would maybe have like a ripple effect with viewers that maybe you would think about the consequences of the things that you post in the vacuum of, you know, social media. Where was the start? Where did you decide that that you were going to start documenting him? It covers a lot of territory and a lot of longitudinal time. So how did you come to the moment where you're like, oh my gosh, we're going to tell this story? Well, you know, I never made a documentary before, but I, I did motion graphics and animation on a couple of friends' films. And one of those films was Giorgio's debut feature, which is called Owned, A Tale of Two Americas, and people should check that film out. Um, it's a film about redlining and post-war housing policy in America. And um, so, you know, I, I think I was maybe emboldened to start a documentary project through, um, you know, working on these films, and you know, as a designer. And um, feel, Matt was someone who I was friends with, and he's someone who we had kicked around a couple collaborate, collaborative ideas before that haven't quite panned out. And then, you know, in 2017, I decided to talk to Matt about maybe doing a documentary about Pepe the Frog and his life. 
And Matt and Iona talked about it, and I'm really thankful they agreed to participate. I think they wanted this story to be told, and they wanted it to be told by people who they trusted. And they trusted us because we were friends with them, and we weren't necessarily part of the media. Matt felt burned by the media. And also, you know, while my background wasn't documentary, cartoons are something that I've loved since I was a kid. And whenever I would see Pepe out in the world as a meme, or unfortunately in 2015, when he was in the news cycle, I had a sense of um, not only confusion, but also like pain. Like I felt like, like, oh no, Pepe's lost. What is going on? Like, do these people understand where Pepe came from? Do they know what Boys Club, the comic book is? And so it was a unique chance to tell a story about how information is attached to cartoons and also a story about the time we were living in. And, you know, it was also just the first interview I shot with Matt was right after the Unite the Right rally. And that was something that Giorgio and I talked a lot about. Maybe you want to take it from there about just how Pepe is kind of this case study for so much stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, that was a really, it feels a million years ago, but, um, it really wasn't. Um, but that moment just felt like so dark. It, it, I, the thing I compared it to at the time was like, I was in college at the university of Texas and during the Bush era and was there during the reelection of George Bush at a time where it just felt like, Oh my God, like this war is a disaster. Everyone saw it coming. Like, how can this guy possibly get reelected? And just feeling like nothing was right. And you were like going insane, just trying to make sense of the world. And then similar with Unite the Right, it was like, well, this is like a new chapter. And I can't believe, you know, he's equivocating about the severity of what's going on here. And, and then the press starts sort of taking the story almost as if uh, platforming these horrific people as if they were, you know, fashionistas or something that just happened to be fascists. And I think for us, we were just like, there's a bigger story to tell here about the process of radicalization. And we knew we would have to deal with some of the alt-right kind of themes, but we also knew that we were way less interested in giving a platform to lunatics like Richard Spencer or Milo Yiannopoulos and more interested in really understanding the people that they were preying upon and how they were using memes to kind of um, coalesce some kind of movement. Like all that seemed way more fascinating and interesting to us and something that obviously you guys, I'm sure, were <laughs> keenly aware of. But I think in the, in, the, in the greater public, it wasn't the way the media was talking about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my paper on Pepe came out in 2017, which we started writing in 2015. And so it took some time for it to come out, but it came out just after the Unite the Right rally. And so my paper's subject was about, could Pepe become commodified? And or reappropriated, and the answer, of course, was yes to both, but in ways we had no way to imagine in 2015. And that's how, when you say like a million years ago, it was like now it feels like even even further back. And I think that exploration that you did is really important to the the so-called like I guess normies out there who didn't really understand at all the idea of Pepe, and they they kind of just saw it only in the way that it was being represented by the mainstream or, or the amplification systems. And so it was like it's to see this film does the service of not only like giving the full story, but going all the way back and back to the Bush years is important because that's where the frame that started it all comes from. Like it's, it's during that era that boys club was produced and that frame, that specific frame was so not what it is today. And I, I like the framing of the film itself because you, you start it with this, like Matt Fury introducing his character and how it goes. And one of my favorite lines that you, you interview of the, of the film at the beginning is what do people get wrong about Pepe? 
And his answer is when they put them on the internet. <laughs> and I love that because it's the idea of like transposing a comic book into a digital space. And from there, it was out of his control. And that's a really great framing device. Did you, when you ha- recorded that bite, did you see how this was going to unfold? <laughs> well, uh, you know, that, that was, uh, honestly, no, <laughs> you know, we, we were shooting, um, in Matt's garage and we, we, you know, it was the first time I'd ever really done an interview before. And it was a really long day and we, um, we shot Matt and then we had a couple drinks and then we shot Matt. Um, drawing. And um, Matt drew Pepe a couple different times. And each time he drew Pepe, he kind of had like a slightly different take on it. The first time he drew him, he kind of drew Pepe really small and in this like breezy manner. And the second time he did kind of like a fast, angry Pepe. And I could tell at this point, like Matt was out of things to say. And that that kind of was just part of our repartee at the end of the day where I was just kind of struggling to ask him new questions because I wanted to hear him maybe have a different take on it. And so that was something that our editor, Aaron Wickenden, found very early on in the edit. There's a couple sequences in the film that he cut basically in the first two or three days that we started editing. And that was one of them. And then there's also the other thing that he cut in those first days was the the sequence that is a back and forth between Matt and his wife, Fiona. And they're talking about the origin of the Feels Good Man comic panel, which for people that don't know what it is, it, it's a it's a six panel comic from Boys Club issue two. And in it, Pepe is peeing in a bathroom into a toilet and he has his shorts pulled all the way down around his ankles. So they're sitting on the floor and it's kind of a funny image. It's also a little gross. And one of his roommates comes in and and realizes Pepe's there sort of barges in on him. And then the final panel is, is one of the other roommates asking him, you know, Hey Pepe, I heard you pee with your pants all the way down around ankles. And he says, Oh, feels good, man. And it's um, really innocent, but it's this inciting incident for our film It's sort of like it's the moment the bullet leaves the gun. You know, it's all this sort of stuff. So, you know, we edited that sequence and, um, you know, both of those kind of felt special. And we felt like, oh, this this is maybe this is going to maybe be a feature and not a short or something else. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. So that, that kind of changed the way you were going to see this story end up becoming. I think it's beautiful in a way that is endearing because what's nice about learning about Pepe, I mean, it's a good way to learn. You know, you learn about Pepe. And through that, you learn about like the sweetness of Matt Fury and his, his somewhat naivete about the entire subject is, is not a fault of his, but rather a fault of the way that it got out of his control. And I don't think you'd understand that if you're just a passive experiencer of internet culture, if you didn't get to see that, like he's an artist who's passionate about his subject, but to the point where he's, it's, it's his material. He, the outside experience of Pepe is what the world did to Pepe, not what Matt Fury made Pepe into. And I, I think that's just a really sweet moment to kind of understand. Like that's not that feels good, man. Is 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 feet is real? Like it's an actual emotion in that, not like a, a slogan or a tagline. Well, that, but that's that said, you know, Matt's work is completely driven by like uh, '80s and '90s commercial taglines. <laughs> so, oh wow! <laughs> totally, I was, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, if you read Boys Club, it's filled with like, um, you know, like basically one-liners taken completely from advertising. The Boys Club characters um, don't really have like their their personalities aren't super different from one to the other, but they kind of speak in all of this like um, Gen X 
kind of like lingo that's completely taken from advertising and like cheesy sitcoms and stuff. And there's always been kind of an encoded cultural critique in the comic books, even though Matt would never be as pretentious to say that. (laughs) (laughs) At one point though, he does, he does say like the the weird part of American culture is we celebrate garbage and we produce a lot of garbage, garbage world. You know, it's like he, he, there is this sense of his awareness of like, it's just a lot. And I think that is, it's not just Gen X, but it's just commodification culture. Just the idea of consumerism is just everywhere around us. Totally. And I think we took, I mean, in, in some sense, we took a similar take with like critiques of consumerism can often feel like belabored or um, uh, judgmental or scoldy. And I think boys club is like obviously a cultural critique, but like in a very passive way that also becomes a kind of uh, Trojan horse in some sense, I, I would say. And like, I think we approached, we approached feels good man in a similar way because the the way that people converse online is just almost set up to to immediately shut each other down with memes, whether it's like, oh, you're just an SJW or, you know, any other number, there's an in, in, entire lexicon of sort of uh, phrases and memes that just are built to shut down the onboarding of new information. And part of the strategy of Feels Good Man and, and the absurdity of the character of Pepe and the sweetness of Matt was a great and very useful tool for us to like, create a piece of rhetorical film that kind of sugared the pill in a sense, right? Like it was because of the absurdity of peeing with his pants down his ankles that we were then allowed to talk about all these other really dark issues without people just like shutting down and be like, Oh, this is too judgy or whatever, you know? Yeah. That, that was, that's, I think that's a good point about memes in general is that they are reductionist. So they do take big ideas and they make them compressed into small spaces and they do act. That's why shit posting is so easy with, memes is because you can reduce everything and then just berate somebody with whatever meaning you think it's supposed to be. And that's, that is something that the film kind of does is it kind of introduces us to all the people that kind of identify from different angles with it. And that's, that's what I want to talk to you about next is your, your interviewees, the subjects in the film, they, they range. I mean, you have like academics, you have researchers, you have scholars, and then you have pizza and you have meats like in there. And that to me was, I think one of the most important aspects of this film is that you actually bring in people who are relational to the subject matter. And it's something that like, I think most films wouldn't have treated in such a uh, respectable way, if that's the right way to think of it. um, Sure. I mean, what we were interested in was um, the attachment that Mills and Pizza, who are our characters or subjects from 4chan, um, the emotionality that they had ascribed to Pepe as being like a signifier of basically like their youth culture group. And um, 4chan within all of its insanity is diverse. And um, and so we felt as though it was necessary to have those people talk about Pepe from their perspective and not have just a journalist or someone painting with a broad brush, you know, but that was something like Giorgio was talking about earlier when he was talking about, um, Spencer and Ianopolis, like, you know, those are the provocateurs of the alt-right. And they recognized that there was this group of kids online that Mills embodies to a certain degree that has a real sense of like cultural entitlement. And, um, they see culture as having left them behind undeservedly. And so, you know, we felt like, 
Mills was the link between, you know, that feeling and then the politics of aggrievement that um, Trump ended up coming to amplify and it came to define the Republican Party as well. It, it, it captured a certain class anger in America that was really under the surface. And so when you're talking about memes carrying all of this baggage, Pepe, you know, can carry all of this stuff at the same time, which is so fascinating, and then still be a silly stone frog. So yeah, it was such rich subject matter that I think both Giorgio and I could just see as artists that maybe came to Doc as second careers, just so much possibility, you know, and so much inspiration. Um, both in the conversations we could have with people, it was a chance for us to really like have a lot of amazing intellectual engagement with new ideas and people that, um, you know, we wouldn't have sought out otherwise. And that was something that um, I think we were constantly emboldened by and um, excited about. It was also like how, how to make a movie, because of course there's tons of films about the internet, but we felt like how would this film differ than those? And in one sense, in some sense, in a general sense, the film always sought to sort of find new ways for the internet to play itself on screen, whether that was through the uh, handling of motion graphics and stuff, but also to your earlier point about just the cast of characters, like the cast of characters itself is almost like the internet coming to life, maybe in a more uh, (laughs) productive way than like the, the, um, Capital insurrection was also sort of a fortune, fortune message word come to life. Like we deliberately selected people to speak on the film that all spoke to something very important about the culture of the internet. So if, if that meant interviewing an occultist, that was like totally fair game because he has like a very specific, uh, position about the internet and the internet is nothing if not just like this ad hoc congregation of like contesting individuals. And so it's hard to really parse what traditional expertise and discussing that really means. And so it made the selection process of voices for the film really fun. Yeah. You didn't, it wasn't surgical. Like that's what I did. I felt like we knew or we could relate to the subjects. Like you went into Mills's room, like you, you saw things that I think a lot of people use as a judgment rather than taking it as something as like, Oh, oh, this is somebody's life. This is somebody who relates. And, and the 2010s have it since post 2008 financial crisis, things have not been great for a lot of people. And I think they find their solace inside these anger spaces that aren't designed as anger spaces, but kind of like, as you mentioned, like they swell and then they use these grievances and they weaponize these grievances. And it, I, don't, I don't want to jump too far ahead here, but there's a there's a moment that you speak about that's like that's been brought up over and over again, which is that the cultist thing, which is like that moment when they make it happen. You know, they 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 manifest that reality, and that's Dale Barron speaks about it in his book, and then he's featured in the film as well. As the, these grieved young men are weaponized, it wasn't like they were. It wasn't like the trajectory until Gamergate, which weaponized it. And it kind of what's what's nice about this film is it treats it linearly. You get to actually see it unfold throughout the decade. So like what you just mentioned is like a movie about the internet. Yeah, there's there's a bunch of them, but most of them are like use like the the Inception theme song over and over again to kind of make you feel really terrible about it. <laughs> and this one is like, and this one is like designed to kind of give you a, a a timeline. It's like it's almost like the side story of our reality during a decade. It's kind of what it covers through that. Oh man, thank you for that. That was yeah. 
No, and also people should check out Dale's book. It came from something awful because oh, it's excellent. Um, yeah, it's a great. It book. is great, and he was like an er, he was one of the first people I reached out to when I was thinking about making a film. Just like, should I do this? Shit, I'm gonna reach out to Dale. <laughs> that that's like one of the great ironies of this entire culture, though, right? Because you have a bunch of aggrieved young people stewing online, feeling like they don't have any agency. Then they all band together in a collective and suddenly realize that they have actual cultural weight and power, but they're like filtering it all through this hyper individualist <laughs> sort of perspective. So there's like this great paradox in, in that they're both aggrieved because they feel they don't have power, but then are unable to recognize the power that they have as a collective. Oh, wow. And then like continue to fall down this hyper individualist kind of, uh, fix for it all. Right. Like the, they fall victim to people like, um, Jordan Peterson, who's to me like the sort of Potter familias of like, uh, indiv hyper individualism, but like mm -hmm. what's <laughs> the thing that they celebrate the most about their own culture is actually their collective power. And it's just always been so hysterical to me that they don't see, <laughs> especially like when we, again, to, not to jump ahead too far, but like the Hong Kong part is like, yeah, uh, yeah, dummy. If you all get together and hold hands <laughs> across the city, you can affect change. Hopefully like mm -hmm. anyway, but that's, um, uh, Adam Curtis was interviewed several times about his recent documentary and he, he was asked why he doesn't include the insurrection in his documentary. And he said, you know, it's, it's sad. It was a sad moment because we got to actually see what collective response is, And it was for all the wrong reasons. And it was such a strange, Precisely. such a strange sight to see. And to, to bring that up, Josh and I have actually talked about this multiple times and I've written on this, the, the most jarring moment. And I think Kevin Roos of the NY times, uh, posted this as a still on a YouTube uh, stream. And there running up the stairs is a man with a Kekistan flag wearing a Pepe mask with a MAGA hat marching in and Pepe entered the Capitol. And it was one of those moments that to me, I, I took that I was that I mean, that day was terrible in general. But that that specific moment of seeing Pepe carried that way was kind of like, it almost broke me, you know, it was like to, to see that. And I can only imagine how Matt Fury felt about that, knowing that that's like how that, that collective action just kind of isn't, he didn't mean for that, but like, do, do you want to talk a little bit about like the, the perversion and the Kekistan and, and what happens when that, that went through its dirt cycles? Well, I, I will say before we get into the way that we handle that in the film, you know, uh, you know, I think it was interesting. One, when we saw that same thing that you spoke to, uh, you know, Giorgio immediately went to Amazon and tried to pull down basically all of those Pepe masks from Amazon and it proved to be quite hard. Oh, wow. Um, and then also, um, I did talk to Matt Fury a couple days afterwards and, um, it was really interesting because I think it was the exact moment that Matt came to realize the power of the film. Oh, I think that it was something where Matt has always really just preferred to define Pepe for himself and just kind of takes umbrage with people who um, have just this like knee jerk reading of the character um, as a meme and then a quote unquote hate symbol. Mm -hmm. And there was this moment where during the Capitol siege, Matt was like, the internet did this. The internet is fucking this all up. And I think that um, he became just kind of, um, I mean, he, he thanked me wow. in a way that he hadn't before. Um, and so, 
yeah, the capital siege was a heavy thing in so many different ways. Um, part of that, it was also hilarious. <laughs> it was ridiculous. <laughs> it was. I mean, um, it was a lot of like real heavy comedy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it was funny. In one of those Adam Curtis interviews for his latest, someone asked him what the soundtrack to that would have been if it were an Adam <laughs> Curtis film. And he said it would be elevator music from like a shopping mall or something like that. (laughs) Totally. But just to speak to that point real quick, I think Adam Curtis's totem that he just released, uh, Can't Get You Out of My Head, is really just is centrally about this. And it, it is kind of odd to me he didn't put it in the film because to me it's the closing argument. Yes. And his argument was basically like, you can't improve society if we're hyper individualists and that's why collective mm-hmm. action always fails because it's always filtered through a hyper individualist perspective. And like the capital siege is like nothing, if not that, right. It, it accomplished absolutely nothing yeah. except for carnage. And you just visually see individuals just kind of meandering around each person mm-hmm. also thinking that they're like the ops team leader, right? They're these incredible little videos where <laughs> Someone's like, team two, come this way. Like, everyone's trying to take charge and it's fucking hysterical. And like the, the, the takeaway there should be like, again, you know, if you actually want change, you have to be comfortable with collectivism because it's just no other way to make mm-hmm. it work. But anyway. Absolutely. And that's, that I think leads to that the culture of commodification and that's it's funny that that though the insurgents and the the seditionist like people who went in there they you're right there they were a group of individuals they a lot of them didn't know each other they had met there for the first time and that's that's made it a funnier and sadder than anything else because it was just like the the spectacular failure of that collective action and that is part of how do they get to that point and a lot of that happens to do with how do they commodify that experience. I mean, some of those people showed up to that event, not only with Pepe regalia, but shirts, like they had merch that occurred previous to that, that, that brought them to that space. And I think what's interesting in the film is that, that there's kind of a hinge. There's a before Pepe and an after Pepe. And it was that moment of potential commodification from Pepe, which is the piece that like I worked on when I, at a certain point in the 2010s, Obama decided to use Doge as a meme for healthcare.gov. And that was kind of very similar to how Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj kind of like reproduced Pepe into their own means. Although Katy Perry and Nicki Minaj's is built with misogyny and like, like the sexism of the internet. But that the idea there is that memes aren't, they're supposed to be of the internet. And then all of a sudden they're of the people. And I think that was like a, a, an existential threat that we saw, like what happens when that metastasizes like five years later, the capital insurrection, but that, that was an interesting moment in the film itself to actually show. And I think that's what's one of the most important parts of meme literacies is to understand it's sometimes a catalyst of the time that actually changes the meanings of memes too. Yeah. I, I think there's a couple things to, to kind of go deeper within that. I mean, the first thing is as we were talking about the origins of boys club and them speaking almost entirely in nineties catchphrases, you know, the, the internet was piggybacking onto a moment in the 90s where, um, and, and Dale speaks to this very well in his book as well. But, you know, it's this moment where youth culture has sort of reached rock bottom in the way that it's being sold, sold itself back. Like, you have brands that are just basically saying like, oh, this is the grunge era, you never mind, whatever. And then the brands being like, oh, we'll sell you Pepsi with the tagline, whatever. 
you know, and there was this kind of um, youth culture rebellion that happened early on in the internet, kind of as a response to um, a little bit of that nihilism. And you saw that sparking up in the early message board cultures, whether that's, you know, 4chan or something awful or rotten or e-bombs world or whatever. It was still this kind of like new regenerative um, jokey nihilism that just was one-upping itself. And then, you know, one of the reasons that Pepe became what Pepe was when he entered into like extremism and the super edgy version of himself was because the early internet hated that the new social media internet had taken their stuff and turned it into money. They thought that it was just gross. And so, yes, Katy Perry is, she's elevating her brand with Pepe. That's disgusting, you know? And so the norminess is also like these normies represent the sort of, you know, sheeple of the consumer class. We were the original provocateurs on the internet. We made the internet fun and crazy and weird and awesome. It's ours. It doesn't belong to all you, you know, people who go to Target and Walmart and all this sort of stuff. I think that's just relating to your point about the 90s culture and the Douglas Rushkoff made a film, Merchants of Cool, in the early 2000s about that. That was kind of this about the feedback loop, about who feeds us. Uh, our commodification and it was like this feedback loop it's us over and over again and uh that that is something that i think the internet changed a lot because it seemed like a, a space of own ownership and that was something a private that the mainstream media couldn't have because it was just too uh, probably it's just too not not appropriate for mainstream but Pepe did cross that line when it became uh, amplified. And I think it also changed too that you mentioned in the film that it's, it's such a now even more important to like kind of focus on this point. It wasn't as important, I think, at the time when it was there. But now with the, the, the era of these NFTs is the moment about the rare Pepe's and the Homer Pepe that like show the vast wealth that comes from the idea of rarity or uniqueness inside of all these Pepe variations. We, we see a lot of like the subject of the Lamborghini distributor, the, the meme guy. And then we, what is, what was Matt's time? What during that time, what was, were you speaking to Matt Fury about that or that discussion <laughs> that happened? <laughs> he was, that was probably the most confused that Matt has ever been. <laughs> and also I will say maybe the most confused is we, we were filmmakers. We were searching for what this film was going to be. So Matt was actually with us on that shoot. Oh, Oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Kind of, it didn't, it didn't end up making the film, but it was a moment where we were trying to figure out like th that, that group of guys wanted to present Matt with a chance to make one of their cards. And, um, at that time period, Matt was just beginning the lawsuit phase of things. And I think, I think he was trying to reconcile it, um, himself in a wide variety of ways. But yeah, what Georgia said for sure holds up. Um, it is confusing, but flash forward to now. And I think Matt is going to release an NFT, right, Giorgio? Yeah. I mean, he's been dutifully working on it, which is, you know, it's definitely, uh, the topic du jour. Um, but it is, he was, I think confused by it all and reluctant, but at the end of the day, like he, like any artist can't really control how people interpret or value the art. And if this is the format in which Pepe means the most to his most ardent fans, 
like Matt always operates in good faith. So he's going to make the most beautiful version of an NFT because at the end of the day, <laughs> he's trying to make work that connects with him and it's not his job. I think the problem that I've seen in the conversation since he announced this online was like, oh, but all these people are scumbags. And it's like, well, maybe, but like... Meaning kind of like crypto libertarians. The crypto, yeah, yeah crypto libertarians, yeah. right? But like, I've talked to some people who are like legitimately psyched about digital art. I don't understand it. Like, but it's not my place to judge what that value is. I also think like paying $100,000 for like a Muggsy Bogues uh, basketball card or whatever, <laughs> like that, that's insane. But um, well, he deserves it though. Uh, but but like, Muggsy doesn't get any of that money. Exactly. Exactly. That's what I was going. I don't know if Muggsy's card goes mm. for that much. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> I'm, I was going to say Wade Boggs, but then I went to Muggsy Boggs. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, like um, I, I am, I know this is a little bit of a, a side thing, but it is related, right? It's, it is, a, it is ironic that a culture of the internet, which thought that for so long that ownership was meaningless and, everything was free. Like I, I played music professionally for mm -hmm. many years before, uh, going back to grad school, then becoming a filmmaker. But like I rode that wave between the sale of CDs and into the early days of streaming. And, you know, obviously there was Napster before that, but there was really this growing sentiment on, uh, it was also coincided with the time I was most on Reddit. And the biggest arguments I would get in on there would always be about ownership of, of your music. And I would always be castigated and told by these people who obviously had no idea what they were talking about that, like, I should feel good that my music is being stolen because then more people should, more people will come to shows and it's more exposure. And it's like, <laughs> well, this might seem weird to you, but touring in bands is not always super enjoyable and it's really stressful and you gain a lot of weight and you basically become a professional alcoholic and it's mm -hmm. stressful on relationships yeah. and it's not a great way to make a living. Uh, and actually I was making a living selling CDs. So kind of fuck you for telling me what I should, you know? And so now we've kind of come full circle where these same types of people are like, no artists should get paid. And like, this is, you know what, for me, I'm like, maybe there's, maybe there are bad faith actors behind all this, but there is to me an interesting exercise here, which is not necessarily the digital arts space, but like how you can attach the sale of physical art to the blockchain and have artists participate in the resale market to me is a really important, hugely consequential change in the power dynamics between artists and the gallery owners and stuff. And so I'm really interested to see where this goes too, but I am also, maybe it's naive, but I'm somewhat hopeful that, um, you know, this is also changing the perceptions of people online about artists and ownership and that maybe uh, patronage, the models of patronage are, are hopefully changing for the better. Cause like selling our film has been a, <laughs> a real uphill battle. Oh yeah. That's a whole, that's a whole other wormhole. But I, yeah, no, I, I've sort of been rethinking about NFTs since we shot that sequence in the film, similar to the way Giorgio has. And I've been thinking a lot about it in the last couple weeks. And like Giorgio, I don't really have an attachment to digital art. Like when I see it, there's nothing about it that makes me want to like, you know, buy it as it were. But I think this NFT moment is um, huge for a couple reasons. I think the first reason is it allows people to actually visualize the blockchain for the first time, really. Because we've all sort of read about the blockchain, but now this gives you a signifier that allows people who haven't been able to kind of wrap their minds around what this is, that they, they now understand it in a kind of different way. And it's also happening at this moment, right after the pandemic, where we're realizing that as the as 
the stock market has done fine during the pandemic. We're having this moment where we're all, we've all been on our phones. We've all been on social media. We've seen social revolutions happen from the removal of our houses on, you know, online. And we realize that our likes, our shares, all of this stuff has financial power. That there are not, um, we don't, you know, the, the economy is not made up of workers. It is made of consumers and likers online. And all, the NFTs are pointing to something that people like Douglas Rushkoff were talking about sort of in the internet, you know, version point one era, which is really like the internet does have the promise for a more peer-to-peer um, more equitable wealth distribution system. And I think, I think it's really kind of generationally huge again. And it's also silly. It's another thing that's totally silly. It's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. And there's definitely horrible people involved, but I have a big secret to tell all of you as someone who's worked for Larry Gagosian, uh, Passively, it's like the the real art market is also filled with a lot of scumbags, oh, <laughs> like the worst we've, mo- money laundering, like hucksters. Yeah, fuck their artists constantly, who who will not pay artists, who don't pay artists up front, who, who withhold payments for years at a time. And there's also huckster artists in that world too. It's just like a part of any marketplace. So there, there. That said, you know, behind all of this, I think there is a very interesting conversation that needs to be had about the environmental impact of all this stuff. And it's one that I've unfortunately gotten dragged into on Twitter, (laughs) but I, I, in good faith, like wanted to kind of expand, sorry, I know this is like a, a maybe a big tangent, but I was, it's it's important. Yeah. I was connected. Yeah. Yeah. It's connected in the sense that like all of this, if we're going to, if we're going to criticize digital art NFTs, we need to criticize digital art more broadly. And like our film is a piece of digital art and it has a carbon impact. And I worked with one of my oldest, dearest childhood friends who happens to be an economist, energy economist at the EPA who literally writes the codes for, for, uh, energy star ratings. I was like, Hey man, can you help me like, think about like, what is it, what is the carbon impact of just having our film on dozens of servers around the world, backed up multiple times, downloaded this many times. And we came to a pretty shocking number just based on the available data that's out there. Uh, of course we'll never know like how each server is being powered or whatever, but you know, the truth is just having a film online produces dozens of tons of carbon per year. And in the grand scheme of things, like if we were to make an NFT for the film, for example, like just to put this in real terms, like uh, Peter Lamborghini, as we call him lovingly, sold his, sold his, sold his Homer Pepe for over $300,000. And the carbon impact of that in the most ungenerous terms as certain blogs have put out is like, I think like 0.38 tons of carbon per NFT transaction. But like Arthur and I's flights to England to film with Susan Blackmore produced way more carbon. But we made that value judgment that like the film will be worth more and produce more money if we go to England and are there with her. We could have done that interview on Skype. It wouldn't have been as cool. We couldn't have filmed all these other additional things that I think ingratiated the film with a bit more uh, grandeur, but we could have gotten away with it. And so like to me in the, in the broader context of like the carbon impact of the film, you know, if we sold an NFT and it sold for the same amount of money as Peter Lamborghini's uh, Homer Pepe, that would be like hugely consequential to the income of the film and very minimal in terms of its total carbon footprint. So like as a mixture of this sum total, like, I don't know, I, it's, it's compelling. Right. 
This is this is part of like I'm glad you told that story. I mean, this is really important. I I, I mentioned to you guys earlier at one point. Josh and I work on like a curriculum for this film because this film is so loaded with those types of stories that we could analyze from every direction. But what what you just mentioned, I think, is really important is the intentionality that is from all sides from. Matt's work on Pepe to your production of the film, it's intentional. It wasn't, there wasn't parts of this that were just kind of thrown in because you, you needed them. They were put together because you had to think about how this story would be told. And so I just want to conclude with like two, two questions, but one of them, I think an important part of the film that I think some of the people that I've worked with, some of the educators I've worked with that show this in their class kind of skip over. And I, I don't like that they skip over it is the lawsuit is the, the, the part where he wins and it may not have been a windfall but it's a it's a it sets an interesting legal precedent on memes intellectual property ownership and what was what was that moment like when you were working with Matt during that that moment i think the audience reads that one way and i think you may have seen it a different way how did that how did that feel well i i will say that matt got people in matt's circle also reacted maybe the way some of the other kids in these classes had where they were like Oh man, only $15,000. You know, there were people like leaving Matt messages like you should have taken him to the cleaners or something like that. Not really understanding what Matt had to go through basically over the course of a year to get that lawsuit to, to have traction and move through depositions and all this sort of stuff. So we had a variety of feelings about it. We had maybe thought that the climax of the film would be in a courtroom of some kind, or maybe Matt and Alex Jones would be in the same courtroom. We didn't know, you know? Uh, so we were trying to figure out maybe how that could could be in the film because we couldn't film in the courtroom. We were wondering um, just structurally how this was going to fit into the film because how do you make a lawsuit exciting? Um, and then... You know, uh, Infowars essentially just gave up the lawsuit because I think they knew they were going to lose and they figured the settlement wasn't going to be so. And, you know, they didn't want to pay a larger settlement and they, they didn't want to pay a punitive damage if they went to court. And so if they settled for this amount, it was a good thing for them. Um, and of course, they played it differently in their own media sphere as like, you know, of course they did. I mean, that's what they'll always do. doesn't matter. Yeah. But, you know, it was something that I think, you know, Matt speaks to it in the film. He talks about how, you know, he made that $15,000 settlements more than he ever made on like the Boys Club comic books or the anthology that's been out on Fantagraphic books like, you know, indie comics. There's not a lot of money in it. Um, and it was also just like a psychic victory for Matt and his family. You know, copyright law is a unique gray area for all of this Internet stuff that we're talking about. You know, and it's going to continue to get weirder with uh, deep fakes. You know, we've seen that copyright is often used in revenge porn cases just because it does have some kind of precedent that you can use. And I do think Pepe is going to be the first in a long line of kind of interesting stories like that. Um, but then when we got that deposition footage, we were like, oh, off to the races. This is, th this is, wild. It's basically like we have an interview with Alex Jones. This is Kraken. Let's go. So he's addressing the camera. It's like he's addressing the viewer. Um, you know, watching that first deposition footage was awesome. <laughs> like it was just like, this is amazing raw material. And then Matt also comes across, you know, that's a four hour cross-examination and Matt never breaks his madness. 
is inherent. Like it's, he's getting kind of, he's getting grilled somewhat aggressively and he's still like, oh man, he's just, he's just like a goofball, but he has a little trolliness too. He's just like a petulant teenager and it's but in the best kind of way. I, yeah, I don't know. It's just awesome. It was awesome. <laughs> it was great. <laughs> but that, that is important to, I think, when, when I'm watching is I don't think people understand the magnitude of that scene. Like that's what you just explained is how important that is. Like you actually have Alex Jones in a deposition and you have him losing. And that, that precedent will be used. This is the, the last question I have is like how, how we see the evolution of what happens in the next like decades, not really a question, but it's like, I think there's going to be not just NFTs and ownership, but I think small artists, like you mentioned, can benefit from NFTs. That is their, because there was no other method really financially scalable previous to that. But it's also having that lawsuit, like that, that's a really important moment in literally the history of intellectual property, because well, Matt carries this character and then kills the character. And it's, but as Pizza says, it's his, he killed his character, not the internet's character. But Pepe, the likeness is now something that is its own being. And I think that's, it, it's like, it reminds me of like the, uh, the end of the film, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide, when they use the improbability machine and you kind of see all those images really quick and you see, uh, the, uh, the image of the author. It's almost like there's, there's so many things now that are compacted into Pepe being this omnipresent, being outside of the film. And so I guess the last question I want to ask you guys is how, how do we start? How, do we have to change our language to speak about this? Do we, my big push is like meme literacies, but is there something that we need to speak differently to make this make more sense to public? So we're more responsibly active in discussing this. Yeah. The, the idea of precedence in this situation is interesting because you know, because it was a settlement, I'm not sure that there is a legal precedent that was made, but the kind of cultural precedent that was made, I think is maybe getting to what your question is asking. And to me, it's that we're, we're in a moment where our digital avatars and our real life selves are like constantly merging. And for a lot of people, especially older people who have find them, found themselves online more and more, they're having a really hard time discerning between what's internet fiction and what's real and tangible. And because of that, you have like digital hucksters like Alex Jones and uh, his ilk who benefit greatly from social media. You know, they benefit because like in the traditional sense, if you were like a corner huckster, like it was really hard to find your flock of sheep, right? Uh, you'd have to like open up a fake church and like hand out pamphlets and, you know, and then social media is just so efficient because you can search people by hashtags and it's just so much it's people in some sense will tell you that they're willing to be kind of brainwashed and be part of this alternative reality. And, and, and what I mean to say in all this is like that the precedent to me is people like Alex Jones create these false realities and seem to get away with everything because they're kind of playing by a different set of rules that exist online. And then, you know, every so often they have to interface with like the actual law. And, and that was something that was, we were originally thinking about what the ending was going to be like, if there was going to be this trial to us, it was like a very fraught moment because we were like these trolls, the, the, the sort of troll movement that Alex Jones represents. And I would say, Donald Trump absolutely represents. They already took over the executive branch. They're in the process of taking over the congressional uh, house branch, uh, legislative branch. And like, this was going to be a test to see if 
Alex Jones could also troll the last remaining branch, which is, you know, our laws. And in some sense, I'm a little bummed that it didn't go to court because I really was looking forward to seeing that as an actual legal precedent, because that to me is like the challenge of our generation moving forward is will our tangible legal system, like our very real legal system, be able to withstand troll behavior because Trump seems really adept at trolling the legal field. But like, is that going to be like a precedent for broader degradation? Mm. No, you're not buying it. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, no, no, no. I'm, I'm totally buying it. Uh, 100%. I'm trying to, you know, guys, this is, no, this conversation has been great because we've, we've talked about this film so much. And I think that, um, it's continue, it's continuously fun to think about this subject matter. And, um, you know, this is a great chance for us to kind of chew on it yet again, but also think about some new things. I've been thinking about this. Um, and here's my harebrained take on it is I don't think we're going to really ever be able to confront this socially until the moment that the attention economy slams up against artificial intelligence. We don't realize that basically all of our likes, all of our shares, all of the things that we present to the world on social media are ultimately creating literal composite sketches of who we are. And there is going to become a moment and it may not be our generation and maybe the next generation where people are sort of going to be coming up with this new idea about like the mind cloud. It's going to be basically about like what fragments of our social media selves ultimately get archived into the cloud and become sort of a um, early or rudimentary artificial intelligence. They're the, the consumer version of us will exist as an entity unto, our, unto itself, separate from our brain or body, and it will continue to go on generationally. And I think that like when people start to wrap their hands around that bullshit, then it's going to start to get real. People are going to understand it, but I don't know if they're going to totally understand it. Until then. <laughs> that, that's my harebrained take on it. But I, that's insane, man. <laughs> I like, I like that one a lot. I was, I was thinking that is incredible. <laughs> I, I don't think we could go any further than that. That is one of the best, honestly, like I'm going to have to chew on that for that. You just sent me into a spiral. It's going to take me weeks to think about that one. That is incredible. It occurred to me. I mean, I've been reading some about AI recently, but I was washing the dishes and looking at Instagram and I was like, fuck, this is me. And I don't know. It was just, I, yeah. I was thinking about it because that's funny this weekend too. And it's, but in the opposite way. And, and I was just witnessing various people getting torn down on social media. Some might call it canceled, but I would not call it can be canceled. But I just generally were thinking about how hard it is to manage if you're like a famous person, like to manage your social media presence, to, to be all things to all people and never offend and be like a, the perfect representation of your followers ideals. And I was thinking about that in correlation with like that AI model. Oh, uh, what's her name? The virtual uh, influencer. Yeah. The virtual influencer. I'm like, well, yeah. shit, man. Oh, like Sophia, if, she just sold an NFT. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Of course. <laughs> But it's like, to me, that to Arthur's point, like that to me is going to be the future of, <laughs> I never got that until this weekend. And I was like, oh, we aren't going to be idolizing people like uh, Chrissy Teigen. That's kind of what I was witnessing this weekend. She was leaving Twitter. The, Chris, the Chrissy Teigens of the world are going to go away and we're just going to obsess over these perfectly designed AI oh. <laughs> sentient <laughs> beings that, that just represent our our, you know, refined, perfect ideals. And 
they will probably actually only correspond to us. It's not going to be like, it's going to be a different AI oh, person. Wow. Anyway, that's the dystopian. Uh, to be fair, <laughs> Sophia is, is not AI. She's basically like an animatron from like the Disney Hall of yeah. Presidents. <laughs> like <laughs> like that, that shit is a con right there. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, that's that's my well, that's my own well, take on it. But, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you both for being here. That was, so, where a few questions? Uh, where where can we find this film, and where can we find both of you? And then, what are you working on next? If you want to talk about that, um, well, yeah, I mean, you can find the film on all the places you can rent rent things. Um, and then also, since mm-hmm. um, you probably have a big academic audience, it's going to come to Canopy really soon. And so anyone with a library card or anyone at, um, you know, a college university can check it out on Canopy. And we're super excited about that because we've always had a vision for the film um, to be used exactly the way you're doing it. So I have to say thank you for writing a curricula about this. Um, We're happy to participate in the future with that or whatever. Thank you for that. Also, the Blu-ray is available with extras. There we go. (laughs) Yeah, Giorgio can do the hard thing. I'll let him him Yeah, no, we have a really awesome Blu-ray with a bunch of deleted scenes that are pretty excellent. excellent. I'll be buying that. (laughs) One one with a pretty awesome deleted scene of an artist, in a meme artist in Russia. I'll leave it at that. So, <laughs> all right, that's a good plug. And where can we find you guys? Um, you know, I think I might be deleting my Twitter soon. I'm not sure, but <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's absolutely oh, fair. Giorgio really, but you love Twitter. <laughs> I do, but it's just it breaks my heart. If you're someone who authentically wants to converse with people, mm-hmm. you, you, it's, it's not possible. I, I'm constantly, yeah, I'm constantly. <laughs> having to remind myself, oh yeah, this isn't a place for conversation. Mm-hmm. It isn't. This is not a place for nuance. It's not a place for anyone to hear each other out. It's just a place to either be bullied or avoid being bullied. And it's like a really bad place. But anyway, mm-hmm. I am also on Instagram. So I guess that's fine. <laughs> yeah. I'm on Instagram. It's a private account. But if you want to, if you want to try to become my Instagram buddy, <laughs> you can attempt. Go, go for it. I, I circle through about once every two months and add about three people. Nice. The, um, but you know, we, we are starting pre-production on a new film we're really excited about. That's about all the stuff we're talking about. We can't really like get too deeply into it, but you know, um, you know, this is when we started making feels good, man, we were not sort of internet intellectuals or this was stuff that was really far off. Um, and it's been such an interesting journey to get to this place. So, um, yeah, we're, we're looking to, um, continue to push this like larger conversation of how social media has changed all of us, um, forward. Excellent. Well, thank you both for being here. Thanks sincerely. This was really an honor to have you both. Thank, thank you so much. We'll be sharing this quite widely. Thank you. No, it's an honor to be here and a, to be, uh, enshrined in the halls of scholarly thought. <laughs> there, there we go. <laughs> Thank you to Arthur and Giorgio for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll be back next week.